You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today is probably one of the biggest moments of my podcasting career so far, because I have the absolute privilege of talking with Tenny McCarty, who is a woman who changed my life forever when I heard her speak at a convention in Las Vegas. She's the author of the book Shades of Hope and the founder and head of an incredible treatment center in Texas called Shades of Hope. In Tenny's book, Shades of Hope, the foreword, written by Ashley Judd, ends saying, I suspect that upon reading this book, you, too, will be grateful that you have been introduced to her and the promise of recovery that inheres in her life story. If it can happen to her, it can happen to you. I'm living proof of that. I would just add ditto. I believe after listening to Tenny today on the podcast, you also will feel that connection of deep recovery, simplicity in the actions and steps taken, and the generosity in which Tenny shares it with anyone she comes in contact with. Even my dogs were a little excited, I think, knowing she was on the podcast. Their barking passes. Please meet Tenny McCarty. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Well, I am absolutely beyond thrilled to have you on my podcast, Tenny McCarty. I cannot believe this is happening. So for my listeners out there, I need to give you a little backstory before I have Tinny join us and share some of her wonderful story. I am clear about being a recovering food addict, and I had the privilege of hearing Tinny share her story back in Las Vegas at a convention. And I can't remember how many years ago that was, but you had just published your book. 10 years. Is that right? Oh, and I sat in that audience and was so overcome by emotion because your story was so familiar and so empowering and so permission giving for me as a professional in the field of addiction to validate the truth that food addiction is just like any other addiction. And it probably one of the most pivotal, powerful moments in my entire personal life, Tinny, was hearing you share your story. And I am so honored to have you here and give you a chance to speak to my audience, which is filled with loved ones of people with this disease of addiction. That's who usually tunes into the podcast and to get a chance to hear from you. So, Tinny, if you were to introduce yourself to an audience that's new to you, how do you do that? Well, what I would usually say is, Name is Tenny McCarty. I'm a very grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater bulimic 
I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, and I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I'm much more than these. This is what we call our claims, but I'm much more than that. But that is uh, the claims. My diseases is what has helped me find out who I really am at the core. So I say I'm grateful Not so much that I'm grateful for having the disorders and the diseases, but I'm very grateful that I have found hope and healing. And that's what I want to share with other people, that there is hope. People can recover from eating disorders or any addiction. I absolutely know that. And tell our audience how you know that. Obviously, your personal story is part of that. But how else do you know that there is hope and recovery? Well, after, you know, I've had the disease of compulsive overeating since I was age four, and then in 72, started practicing bulimia, and for 13 years, got very ill with bulimia, and then went to treatment, and I didn't know there was treatment for folks like me. I was in the addiction field, worked with drug addicts and alcoholics every day, but I had no idea that I just thought I was a, a glutton and weak willed and was trying to lose the weight. I did not know I had a disease that was absolutely just like an alcoholic. These similarities are there. So I went to treatment and realized that I had a brain chemistry that's different than normal eaters. And that I did have a disease called compulsive overeating and bulimia. And I also learned that I could treat it one day at a time. And actually, I'm very grateful that I went to that particular treatment center because they did, now they did a lot of other things, but the basic, the core of the treatment was the 12-step program. And that's what I taught every day to drug addicts and alcoholics at the treatment center uh, here at home. So I left there knowing that, you know, I had looked for help all of my life all of my life, starting at about age 13. But I left there having some solutions and knowing that if I followed the direction that was given to me in that treatment center, if I did that one day at a time, I could get well. And I'm coming up on 36 years of recovery from uh, food addiction, compulsive overeating, and bulimia. And I am grateful for every one of those days. And it takes work. It, ta- it mm-hmm. takes hard work. But after a while, and I tell people this all the time, after a while, the food takes its proper place. I mean, I look back and I cannot imagine food not running my life today like it had for many, many years. And um, I cannot say how grateful I am for that. You know, I eat today to sustain my body. I eat basically three meals a day, nothing in between, maybe a snack in mid-afternoon or at night. Food's not the problem. Food is not the problem. And what getting some, you know, the recovery from the food addiction in order has helped me look at other aspects of my life because that's what I was trying to hide is the history and push the feelings down. And I no longer have to do that. I get to deal with the feelings. So a similarity we share being in the field of addiction, serving clients with chemical dependency and addiction and not acknowledging or knowing or using the same language until it was taught to me that that was an option, that my disease worked in the same way. What led you to originally work in the field of addiction, Tinny? 
Well, I came from one of those very dysfunctional homes that uh, we, you know, hear about. And my parents were very ill. My mother was a prescription drug addict. She laid on the couch and wore out couches. She was sick my entire life. Mm. Uh, and she was also a compulsive overeater, but she would go from anorexia to being overweight. And uh, my father was a uh, sex addict. He was a violent man. Anyway, he did all of his violence and got away with a lot because he was also a law enforcement officer. So I grew up in a lot of dishonesty. I mean, I was pretty much captive in the house. You know, my dad would say, you can't trust anyone outside this house. Mm. Well, I came to learn I couldn't trust the people inside the house. So I knew that I wanted my life to be different. And actually at age eight, I started to a little Baptist church and really found, I didn't find religion. What I found was the God of my understanding. You know, it didn't take away the suffering and all that, but I knew, I had a knowing that somewhere along the line, my life was going to be all right. So I've been a seeker of help forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always swore that I'd never marry an alcoholic, and I didn't. I married me two of them. Uh, so my <laughs> second husband... And I, I had no idea he was an alcoholic because he could drink, would go out and he'd drink anyway. I didn't realize he was an alcoholic until we were on our honeymoon. And so what happened for me is that I found uh, Al-Anon Family Group mm -hmm. uh, and spent 14 years there before my husband uh, ever went to his first AA meeting. Mm. And while I was there, together we had seven children. My husband had always made us a good living, but I thought, you know, if he didn't get sobriety, I might have to make a living for these children. And I didn't have an education. I went back to school. They were just licensing chemical dependency uh, counselors in our area. And I went toward that field, really wanting to work mainly with children of alcoholics. But that's how I got into the field. And my husband was still drinking uh, when I got into the alcoholism and drug field. Had the opportunity of, of helping start a drug program here in Abilene, Texas. There wasn't a lot of help for drug addicts and alcoholics back in those years. So I got to start really from the ground up and uh, you know, I would wish on days that I could be more of an alcoholic so I could get help, you know, because my behavior was getting sicker. I was getting sicker and sicker by the day. And it was actually a recovering drug addict that I had hired from L.A. that worked for me in the treatment center. I had hired him. He was actually the one that took me, that uh, told me about the treatment center in L.A., and he gave me a book, Fat is a Family Affair by Dr. Judy Hollis. And I read it, and they were opening the center on Tuesday. And by Wednesday, I was there, and it's the best thing that ever happened. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but the best thing. I know today I could not have made it without treatment. Because I've been in a wave since 1972, and that was 85. Mm -hmm. And I could not have made it without treatment. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Hello, friends. This is Margaret. Thank you for your loyalty in listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Please go to your favorite podcast platform and push the follow button. This will help grow our reach so more families can learn about the podcast. Thanks for your help. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. 
Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So you bring up some really interesting things. My way of getting into recovery was through the 12 steps of OA originally. And it was through a colleague of mine saying when I went into her room and I just was devastated at my inability to stop and how I was seeing the similarities in my behavior to the clients that I served. And she's like, what about going to an OA meeting? And I'm like, I live in rural Wisconsin. Are you kidding me? I'm not driving all the way to Minneapolis, St. Paul for some stupid meeting that probably won't even help me. I mean, I've tried everything. And she found a meeting 20 minutes from my doorstep. And it was there that I started to hear people share my story, which helped me find my way into recovery. But the thing that jumped out at me, and many things did, Tinny, that you shared just then, was you shared, I believe it was 14 years you were in Al-Anon before your husband got help for his alcoholism? Yes, 14 years. I know there are people listening who are in that situation where they're not able to change their person. They've accepted that on some level, but they're still struggling, but they're going to their meetings. And there are people out there who are trying to decide if they stay, if they go, what's my role? What do I do? How did you manage those 14 years? What helped you? What did you do different as a result of your exposure to Al-Anon? Well, I will tell you, I was far sicker than my husband ever thought about being. I was emotionally sick from living in the disease of alcoholism all my life. My father was a rager, and I had picked up his rage. I had become a rager, and I'm not proud of this. My husband, uh, he was a gentle man. He was gentle, Uh, and he would come home drunk at night, and I'd beat him up. Now, I'm not proud of that, but it was my behavior that I was eating over. It wasn't his. You know, and I ate myself up to 287 pounds, but I would get mad at him and beat him up. And then the next morning I would apologize to him. And he never knew what I was apologizing for because he was, you know, had been in a blackout the night before. So we got very sick together, the two of us. But when I I found Alamon through it, I had been to a uh, to hear Father Martin, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Father Martin, beloved. You know, he did the what we call chalk talks. And I heard yep. him many years ago, and he talked about the family and what happens to the family. And he said the family needs as much, if not more, help than the alcoholic. So he talked about Al-Anon. And so I started to Al-Anon and it was hard for me to go because by that time I was so shut down, I could hardly say my name. But, you know, I could rage at home to my kids and my husband. But outside the home, I was just shut down. I was really pretty mentally ill. I don't know what my diagnosis would have been, but uh, it was the uh, living the disease of alcoholism had taken its toll on me. So I went to al and by the grace of God, got a really good sponsor that had just moved there to our town. And she had fed me the program of Al-Anon in a very gentle, loving way. And one of the things that she taught me early on was that it's okay to love an alcoholic. Just don't love them to death. And she helped me give up trying to caretake him and trying to be his mother, all of those things. And also, she's the one who helped me to see that he had a disease. 
he wasn't doing it at me. My mother wasn't doing it at me. You know, none of that. That they both had a disease. And when I could get to the point that I could love my husband in spite of his disease, I remember one day walking up to him. By this time, I was already a counselor. I'd already started thinking about, because I only had a couple of children at home by then, and I thought, do I want to continue to live in the disease of alcoholism? I had no idea that he would ever sober up. Right. Uh, and so... I went up to him one day and, you know, you kind of dodge because he's used to me hitting him. But anyway, I put my arms around him and I told him, I said, honey, I know that you're sick, that you have a disease called alcoholism. And I love you and I care about you, but I cannot go down with you. And I'm here if you ever want any help, if you ever want to do anything different. But I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not saying I'm leaving today but I've got to find a better life for myself and the children. And that's how I left it. And I went on about my business. And it was probably two weeks later, he showed up for his first AA meeting. What I say with alcoholics, we have to get off of their back, get out of their way and go on with our own lives. And that's what I did. And my husband would say, you know, in his AA talk, he would say, he realized he was going to sit there in his chair and drank himself to death while his wife and family was going on with their lives. Mm -hmm. I had to, I had to find a life for me and the children, regardless of whether he ever sobered up or not. So I, I never left, but I, I did go as far as renting an apartment. What I tell people is stay in the situation unless it's physically abusive. And of course, I was the one that was the abuser. Right. I tell people, stay until you can stay and become different. When you can become different inside that relationship, and what that means is when you can love yourself enough to know that it's not about you, when we can stand tall, autonomous with the God of our understanding, when we can stand alone, we can stand with another person. But I had always been so dependent on someone, my mother, my husband, you know, and it takes two healthy people to make a marriage. Mm -hmm. And we had two unhealthy people that formed a dependency to each other. So when I pulled out of that dependency cycle, my husband, I say, fell flat on his face and he decided he wanted sobriety. Really didn't have that much to do with me. I went on with my life, and he made the decision to recover. So take me back, Tenny, because I hear the change. I hear that you got in and were gently and firmly taught what you felt you needed to and be healthier in yourself. The transition from the way we've always done it to the new way of doing it through Al-Anon, I describe as a dance, right? The one we've been in is familiar. We know the steps. We know how to engage with the disease. It's very second nature when we've lived in it. But as we're learning to do this new dance with these new tools that feel so counterintuitive, what we learn mm -hmm. as a, a loved one, did you have techniques you use to slow you down to stop your reactivity did you use your sponsor to, you know what can you go back to those early days and and talk about what helped you in that transition to being able to set the boundaries and live a way that was different absolutely and it had to start with a lot about my mothering also because I ran 
the house and we had seven children. We had a blended family and I ran that household like a staff sergeant. Uh, and I was a spotless housekeeper and active in the community and blah, 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 and all of that. And a compulsive overeater. And I drove those children to perfection. And so it really had to start in the home, not even with my husband. I had to start being a better person that I could live with. So my sponsored early on she gave me uh you know the little meditation book one day at a time and she said set out of a morning take you know get up and I was an early riser but she said take five minutes sit down and read this meditation book every morning well I mine was like on a railroad track and I couldn't do but two minutes but gradually I did five and then gradually I began to where I could do more prayer meditation, but I would start it every morning. And then she said, why don't you start putting some cheerful music on in the house while you're fixing breakfast for your children? Well, I did that and they'd come downstairs and they didn't know what was going on because (laughs) I had a smile on my face. And I wanted to be a tap dancer. And so I started doing little tap dances for them. You know, I began to change in front of the children. And it Mm -hmm. helped me so much to to give up. And it took years to really give up all of that rage and anger. And it took a lot of treatment, a lot of experiential help to get rid of the rage. But anyway, it was those things that she would give me to do that I would do. I would actually do them. When the kids would go to school, the older ones, I had a about a two-year-old uh, still, at, you know, still at home. Mm-hmm. And when they'd go to school, I'd gather that little two-year-old. Uh, by that time, I had three or four meditation books, and I'd read those meditation books to her, and then I'd read her a little story. That was our time. And uh, But one morning, I overslept. And I hit the floor running and went to the bottom of the stairs, screaming at those kids like I'd done before. And, you know, and I was in there trying to make lunches and fix breakfast and all that. And all of a sudden, I felt a tug to my old house coat. And I looked down. My sponsor had given me a little denim bag that uh, to carry my meditation books in. And I looked down and my baby girl was pulling on my house coat. She had that little denim bag and she held that bag up. She didn't know all about what was in that bag, but she knew if her mother opened it, she was a kinder person. That was the best lesson I've ever gotten. And I'll tell you, from that point to this, I've never failed to do some form of prayer meditation. Sometimes it's laying in my bed. Sometimes it's with this girl here, Misty. We do prayer and share together. We used to do it every morning. We're going to have to get back on a better schedule. But I've, I've had a prayer partner for many, many years. And so prayer meditation has been the most number one thing that has changed my life. And then going to meetings, sponsoring people, taking action. You know, and when I came home from treatment, we had disbanded OA meetings in Abilene. And I knew I had to get with like kind. And so I drove to Fort Worth, which is two and a half hours one way. I did that for about a year to go to meetings. And then I came back and uh, 
uh, myself and another woman, we started OA meetings and they grew and they grew and they grew, being willing to go to any lengths, willing mm-hmm. to go to any lengths, driving to Fort Worth to go to meetings. I knew I had to do that. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I would say to people is to be willing to do whatever. And, you know, that's I'm going to pat myself on the back for that because I've searched for help forever. And when I would find help, I would follow directions. And that's where I see people not being willing to do. They want help, but they don't want to do the work. It takes work. It takes work. Thank you, Tinny. I think that what you shared that's so powerful is the taking the action, the baby steps, even if they seem small, like you said, you could only manage two minutes at first because your brain was on the railroad track. That if, if we're willing and we take the action, we grow and take direction from a sponsor or whomever we're working with to help us find our path. I mean, I couldn't have done recovery without that accountability and direction. Oh, I've had many, many sponsors. And, you know, because I qualify for different 12-step programs, I've had to have a sponsor in each one. And also years ago, had a spiritual director, a spiritual guide, and she was like a grandmother to my kids. She had many years of sobriety. And so um, it took more for me, I think, but I've always worked with the sponsor. I still do. And I sponsor a couple of people. And uh, I do that mostly by phone. But in the early days, I mean, I called a sponsor every day. And I'm talking about early days. I probably did that for the first uh, 35 years of my recovery. I found Al-Anon in uh, October of 1968. So I've been doing this a while. You have. You have. But it has taken a lot of, and going to conferences and going to weekend retreats, you know, I would go anywhere that I might could hear something that's helping someone. I mean, I, I wanted to get well more than I wanted to stay sick. Do you think it's harder to get well than to stay sick or harder to stay sick and keep that life going? Well, I've done it both ways. But once I started toward recovery, I mean, I loved and I still love every bit of it. I mean, it's it is just it's everything I, I wanted out of a family. That is what I was looking for. I wanted direction. I wanted someone, you know, my mother and dad could not parent me. And this is really what I have found in a 12-step program is some reparenting. Those 12 steps will reparent anyone. And then we can become our own healthy parents. I had looked for directions all of my life. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I mean, my family, my folks were very ill, you know, and they came from sick families. So it's not about that I'm beating them up. Uh, but they were sick people, mm-hmm. and uh, sick people have sick people, you know, and passes down. But uh, and it's I'm sad to say I'm really the only one in my family that ever sought recovery. Uh, my mother did for a while, but she she loved. I called her my little tablet taker. She loved those prescription drugs, and you know, my sister died about a year ago, and she died of untreated codependency. She never ever would accept the fact that our mother was as sick as she was. 
My sister was three years older. She was out of the home quicker. She left real young. So I did get the bulk of my parents' sickness. But still, um, just to say that I'm the only one. And it saddens me that my Mm -hmm. family didn't join me. But I will say the family that my husband and I have established all of our kids are in some, well, not all, That's a, they all know about recovery and majority of them are in recovery. So recovery is, is just a wonderful way to live. And the big book talks about, we'll see a fellowship that will grow up around us. And I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to have, uh, before my husband passed away, uh, we'd have large groups of people at our home nearly every Saturday night after the AA meeting. He loved having a lot of people in, and we had a move. You got to stick, stick around the program long enough to have fun with it. Right. And we had a lot of fun in recovery, still do. Mm-hmm. And I would assume your children were witness to that through the transition of your healing and your husband's healing. Absolutely. And when they talk, it almost embarrasses me to even say this, but when my three daughters talk, what they will say, is that their mother going to Al-Anon is what saved all of them. And as much as they didn't like it, they were, you know, little kids and then got into being teenagers and all. And they were, you know, kids were selfish. They wanted me there all the time. And they'd complain about me being on the phone or going to too many meetings or whatever. But today they say, oh, mother, we're so glad that you did. And they wanted me to then. But, you know, they also wanted to because self-centered kids they wanted their mom at home and we involved them we took them to conferences not all the time but uh, we incorporated a lot of fun into our household which we had not had before mm-hmm. it had been a very serious household mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't lie did i tenny is one of a kind come back next week to hear more from this wonderful role model of recovery. She does it to the best of her ability one day at a time, which is what I aspire to do, and I hope you will be encouraged to do also. Until next time, take care of you. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.